What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Ryan Selkis is the founder and CEO of Masari. He's been around the industry for a very long time. And every year lately, he's been writing an absolute monster of a report with his crypto thesis for the following year. The new 2022 crypto thesis report is out now. And that's all we talk about throughout this entire conversation. So I hope you enjoy. I always enjoy talking to Ryan and I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Before we get into the episode, let's talk about our sponsors. First up is LMAX Digital. LMAX Digital is the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, all underscored by a 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They leverage LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology. LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. If you're an institution, you gotta be using LMAX Digital. They have a central limit order book streaming spot Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, all paired with US dollar, euro, and yen. LMAX Digital is the number one institutional crypto exchange. They're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. You can learn more about LMAX Digital at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Next up is Compass Mining. Compass Mining is the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. Their team makes it easy to start mining wherever you want, at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. Through the Compass Marketplace, retail miners can access mining hardware with similar prices and purchase plans as the world's largest mining companies. Compass miners own their machines, they choose whatever mining pool they want, and they can mine directly to their own wallet. Miners who don't want to host their machines can order ASICs directly to their doorstep as well. Simple and low-cost hosting agreements coupled with best-in-class customer service are the reasons why Compass is the simplest and most popular way to mine Bitcoin. You can start mining your own Bitcoin by visiting compassmining.io today. Compassmining.io today. Last but not least, many of you constantly DM me, email me, yell out to me on the street. How do I get a job in Bitcoin or crypto? Well, I've got some solutions for you. We started a new product. It is called Pomp Crypto Jobs. It's a marketplace where you can go and apply for hundreds of open roles at the, at the industry's leading companies. Everyone from Coinbase to Gemini, Kraken, BlockFi, Strike, BTC Inc., and many, many others have open roles listed there. All you do is you go to pompcryptojobs.com and you start applying. It's completely free to apply for those roles. So go to pompcryptojobs.com if you got a job that you don't like and you want a new one in Bitcoin or crypto. There's nothing better than focusing full-time on Bitcoin or crypto. So go to pompcryptojobs.com. And if you feel like you're not prepared yet to actually apply and get the job, we have a training program that you can also go ahead and check out. If you go to pompscryptocourse.com, pomp with an S, cryptocourse.com, you can go there. It's a three-week intensive course. We teach you everything you need to know about the industry. And then we hand you off to the HR teams at various leading companies. We've worked hand-in-hand with those leading companies to create the curriculum, so we know this works. People have been hired at everywhere from Coinbase, Gemini, BlockFi, Kraken, Anchorage, BTC Inc., Strike, and many, many others. So if you want an open job, go to pompcryptojobs.com. But if you want to go through the training program, go to pompscryptocourse.com, and we'll see you there. All right, let's get in the episode with Jameson and Pete. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy. 
but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Ryan here. Uh, I feel like every year, right about this time, uh, everyone knows what's up, is Masari's going to drop their 2022 annual report of their theses, do a little bit of looking back over the last year, and also what they expect to happen in the coming year. Uh, we did this last year and just ran through a bunch of the themes that you outlaid in it. Uh, this year, very long document, very thorough, probably one of the best ones anyone drops. Uh, do we have a uh, expectation uh, in terms of uh, how long it will take somebody to read this document to start with? I mean, it depends on if you're a speed reader. It depends on whether you actually you know, bother absorbing all of my garbage. Um, you know, it, like this annual report is a good exercise for me to just collect my thoughts and, and create a mental map for what is a rapidly evolving uh, ecosystem on on like five different axes. So um, I think uh, it's uh, it's it's helpful for me as a way to process information, get the lay of the land in broad strokes, and almost like an index, right? It, you know, you obviously want to handicap how your predictions and and kind of how you, what what your priors look like, what was right, what was wrong, you know, why were you right, why were you wrong, kind of looking backwards. So I do that every year as well, and. Um, uh, at the end of the day, you know, this can be like a, a Bible that like even I go back to if I'm uh, trying to make a, a quick like navigation to a, a different sector or you know, different theme. What did I write about this? What were some of the other kind of you know, sources that, that I, I relied on or some of the other long reads that are actually worth reading? Um, but obviously, I wasn't just going to staple together, you know, 120 different 30 page um, treatises that uh, that other smarter people have uh, have written. So it's just a synopsis of uh, what I think other smart people, including our own analysts, have, have thought throughout the year and where we're going. All right. The first topic we're going to talk about is the collapse in institutional trust, uh, which I think for people inside of Bitcoin, crypto, uh, kind of the decentralized world, individual sovereignty, uh, they're interested in those ideas. This is like, duh, right? Of course, there's a collapse of institutional trust. People who maybe are just new to this stuff uh, or who are listening to this for the first time, this may actually be shocking to them. So walk me through how you think about that falling amount of trust. And is there like a quantifiable metric that you look at or, or is it more so just sentiment and kind of anecdotal evidence? Well, I, I think this is obviously subjective, but... Um, uh, A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, um, put together a, a Web3 policy team that's been doing a lot of work in, in D.C. trying to educate policymakers on what crypto is, uh, broadly what, what Web3 is. That you know, There's been a little bit of an attempt to rebrand crypto as, as Web3 because it's a little bit more friendly of a term, less scary, and, and it's, uh, I think, more reflective of the fact that we are trying to rebuild you know, the entire Internet, not just cryptocurrencies. Um, but in their uh, education document and presentation of policymakers, they have this really uh, amazing graphic that is um, a chart on two axes based on competence and trust. So uh, low trust, high trust, you know, high competence, low competence. And, um, and this was based on survey results from Edelman, um, big market research firm that uh, basically showed no modern institution is seen as both high trust and high competence, right? So um, NGOs, uh, like you know, nonprofits, were considered um, high trust, but not, not necessarily high competence. Businesses were considered um, high competence, but you know, lower on the trust uh, uh, axis. And then you had um, 
the mainstream media and the government. So basically, you know, the, the, uh, the, the three branches of government and then the fourth estate, the media, um, as ranking uh, very negatively in both competence and trust. Um, and when you're living in an environment like that and you see everything that we've seen over the last couple of years that, you know, folks in your audience are, uh, I'm sure, have, have, have heard, you know, relentlessly, um, 40% of dollars, you know, printed in the last 18 months. Um, you know, we've mismanaged COVID. The Afghanistan exit was a, a disaster. You're seeing, you know, progressively more you know, censorship, platforming. There's just, um, I think, this bubbling sentiment that the systems that we've built um, are slowly disintegrating, and, and really, there's there's kind of an absence of, of leadership. And I think um, it took a while, even for me, because I got into you know, Bitcoin back in 2013, and, and even back then, it kind of felt like a pessimistic bet on the future. But over the last few years, you started to realize that like Bitcoin and, and crypto powered networks might actually be the only quote unquote institution that could fit in that you know, upper right hand quadrant that's both high trust, thanks to encryption and high competence, because you have the best, most talented people in the world that are flooding into the space at, at you know, an alarming rate and, um, and building things that people are actually using now. So um, I think, uh, you know, the framing is you know, you're not going to be excited about crypto if your life is perfect and uh, you think that everything is going just swimmingly and you're one of the, you know, like 11% of people that think Congress is doing a good job. Um, but for everybody else, um, there's kind of this like simmering uh, unrest uh, for, for the last several years. It really got thrown into high gear thanks to COVID. And um, and it's it's kind of brought a lot of uh, the problems with our existing institutions into focus. Um, the question now is, which ones do we slowly replace with you know, decentralized math-based systems um, using crypto versus um, which ones are, are actually going to you know, maintain credibility and, and, and survive this transformation? So in the document, you explicitly call out the difference between mercenaries and missionaries. And you basically say, you know, whether you're here as a missionary or a mercenary, you'll find that one of the primary unifying forces behind this movement is the belief that decentralized technologies with embedded financial incentives offer a compelling, often lucrative alternative to our decaying legacy institutions, which first of all, is just like a pro level sentence that you put together there. Uh, but this idea of both mercenary and missionary both finding uh, kind of a home or value in this. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two groups of people coming together around one common set of technologies? Um, you know, I'll, I'll paraphrase a number of, of smart people that have, uh, that have said this, but you know, crypto is a, um, a, a new tech paradigm dressed as a Ponzi scheme, right? Some, something along those lines. And the reason that Bitcoin and, and these other systems have taken off is because you know, they've been bootstrapped into existence by speculators. Um, folks that believe in this vision of the future that um, ultimately are you know, going to be rewarded for their early faith, even if it does take a while for mainstream adoption to, to take root, right? So perfect example is, is Bitcoin. Um, until the, the infamous you know, Bitcoin pizza transaction, which you know in hindsight is hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, right? Um, Without that transaction, you don't have the um, the first you know, proof of concept that you could actually buy something real uh, with Bitcoin, right? It, it's it's I think the same you know with with many of these other you know emerging assets. Like without the first ICOs on on Ethereum, you couldn't prove that um, Ether would be a reserve currency for all types of decentralized finance applications. Um, without you know the the crypto punks 
you know, airdrop and, and some of these games um, that have emerged, you know, as, as far back as 2017, you wouldn't have been able to prove that, you know, non-fungible tokens or N- NFTs could be these really interesting, you know, scarce digital objects with, with different you know, storable attributes. So um, I think the missionaries are the ones that see this, get excited and then, you know, build and, and stick around for the long-term, whether it's a bear market where they're, you know, kind of in the trenches building for the next cycle um, uh, or the mercenaries that, you know, quite frankly, are, are, are just uh, at worst necessary evils, but at best, you know, they're, they're the backstops of the entire new financial system, right? Without the speculators, without these you know, deep-pocketed individuals, you don't have um, liquid markets and, and, and you certainly don't have, the market cap that we have today that can attract the type of new inflows that we're seeing that, that's going to fund new applications and, and new infrastructure and, and you know, kind of continue the upward you know, momentum of the rest of the industry. So I think um, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy with uh, crypto how compressed these hype cycles are. If you think about like the classic, you know, peak of inflated expectations and then the long trough of disillusionment and and then you know, kind of the gradual upslope uh, in, in the installation phase. We've seen like six or seven of these in, in, in crypto over the last decade. Um, and uh, and I think uh, all along that curve, you've got different personas that are, are playing a role in, in the build out of the Sika system. When you think about the inevitability, the uh, second topic that you guys cover in the piece is uh, crypto web three uh, are inevitable. Describe how you think about you know, we know what the problem is. It's very obvious, mm-hmm. uh, both anecdotally and, and I would even argue quantifi- uh, quantifiably as well in terms of some of these sentiment surveys, et cetera. Uh, is it just that the problem's so bad that of course this works or are there other things that you look at that signal why this is inevitable? I, I think with some of the early applications that are, are taking root and getting a lot of traction, they are in order of magnitude or more better um, in, you know, depending on which, attributes you're looking at or you're comparing these against to the legacy system, for instance. So, you know, in DeFi, you're going to be able to earn 5, 10, 15, even 20% returns, depending on the, the protocol that you're, um, that you're participating in versus, you know, half percent in like a, a, a CD with a bank. Um, the rates are structurally higher. There is greater risk and, and you're paying for that you know, greater risk, but you're also generating higher returns in the process. And a lot of investors are, you know, trying to find assets that are, are going to yield in a zero or negative interest rate environment, right? So that's DeFi. With um, with some of these new um, Web3 marketplaces that are, you know, trying to replace things um, like Medium. So Mirror is a good example. The um, the content creator or, or some of these gaming you know platforms might even be a, 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 an even better example. In 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 gaming or in publishing, typically the the take rate of the platform is hundred percent, right? Facebook makes hundred percent of the ad dollars. The big five you know gaming platforms they'll sell these virtual goods, but they're not necessarily portable, and they control all the rules, the economies within their systems. Um, you're you're basically like living on on rented land. And um, with crypto, uh, whether you're talking about um, a you know, platform like Mirror, which is ultimately rewarding creators that are uh, publishing on the system versus Medium, um, or you're talking about uh, a Web3 game like Axie Infinity or, or some of these other uh, emerging you know, year one play to earn games, the take rate for the, the centralized platform is, um, is in the you know, single 
digits or, or the, the low double digits percentage points instead of 100% or 80% or, or, or even 50%. I think you know YouTube is maybe the most um, generous you know, web two company in terms of creator splits and, and it's 50-50. Um, you're talking about um, a new economy where the creators will earn you know, 80 to 90% or more uh, of, of the, the revenue that they help bring to the platform. But then there's an additional sweetener, which is if you're early and you actually help solve the zero to one problem with these networks, you'll essentially get what's equivalent to you know, stock options in these new systems. So um, you know, tokens uh, that are you know, either airdropped to you or, um, or become incentives for different actions that you might perform on, on a given platform, every post that you write, every every battle that you fight in, if it's a game, every every like, uh, every follower, you know, those can be quantified and your value as an individual contributor to the platform um, can actually be you know, studied and rewarded. And the earlier you are, you know, the, the, the greater you know, economic incentives um, you'll receive to capture some of that future growth of the network. Um, so the best way to think about you know, why this is inevitable is to, to just consider that basically every modern marketplace and, and every you know, existing you know, real world company or, or web two company that can be um, not just decentralized, but user owned will end up looking more like a, a cooperative, right? So Facebook's early users become the, lot, the largest stockholders. Um, the uh, the you know Epic Games uh, is is going to experience an innovator's dilemma right now. Do they open up their their virtual goods universe and do they make these assets interoperable and do they open up their marketplace so that it's you know free and, and competitive, um, or do you know, similar quality Web three gaming companies come in, um, offer these you know, far superior user you know, rewards and returns, and um, and basically you know. Uh, eat their lunch and, and uh, disrupt who were previously the disruptors. I think that's um, uh, it's it, it's inevitable once you get a taste of it as a creator and as a user, because the first thing that you'll think about with any new service is, you know, where's my cut? <laughs> I'm, I'm helping you build this platform. I'm helping you build all this value. Um, how is this ultimately going to flow back to me? So we've seen companies in the legacy kind of Web2 market, right? We saw Uber try to give drivers equity when uh, they were going public. We saw Airbnb try to give equity to host. Uh, we've seen a number mm-hmm. of other companies try to figure out things to do. Uh, we see, for example, uh, content creators that will do massive giveaways, you know, Mr. Beast, uh, the Nelk Boys, et cetera. Like, this is not a quote-unquote new idea in terms of having some sort of economic reward for those that participate. It seems like there's one regulatory burden uh, in terms of the ability for like Uber to give their drivers equity or Airbnb. There, there's a whole bunch of kind of back and forth with uh, lawyers of how to do that. The second thing, there's a technology barrier, right? Like how would you actually do it? Are we going to get every Uber driver to sign up for like a traditional brokerage account and like just shovel, you know, mm-hmm. Charles Schwab account holders? Uh, maybe, but that seems pretty difficult to do. And then the third thing is what I'll call like consumer behavior. Right, which is they're not used to working for uh, equity. They're used to working for cash. And so maybe professional athletes are like the, the best proxy for this. Historically, they always took cash deals. And then there was, you know, Magic Johnson, there was Michael Jordan, now LeBron James. They have these examples where people started to take cash and equity and the equity worked out. And they're like, oh, wow, maybe I should be getting paid in equity, not just cash. Um, and so they start to change their behavior. 
When you look at this new iteration of this idea, how much of it is solving the technology component versus is addressing regulation and like consumer behavior, right? Is it just if you solve the tech, the other two follow? Or do you think that there has to be a holistic approach, regulatory um, kind of education in terms of changing the consumer behavior and also this tech obviously has to change in order to make it work as well? Yeah, so I think that the middle one, the user behavior change, that's where the the uh, dollar incentives come in, right? And and kind of the the uh, the fat tail of of distributions going to the early adopters and the folks that really help you know, bootstrap these uh, new products and new environments. Um, that kind of leads into like the the tech behind it all as well. Um, one of the reasons that those early users get these outsized rewards is because they are actually helping you know, stress test the, the early tech and, and you know, give feedback on the, the user experience and, and workflows of these emerging systems. And um, because they're power users, they're ultimately, you know, uh, they're, they're the, the early product testers and, um, and co-designers almost of, of these networks, especially because in return, they're getting tokens and then they have some say in how uh, the governance of the system, whether you're talking about the underlying economics, some of the key technical changes that might be incorporated, um, these users are gonna have some say in that process and, and how the ecosystem and protocol develops going forward. Um, then there's the regulatory component, which I agree with you. Um, there's hypothetically no reason that uh, you can't do this with equity or, or stock options like Uber wanted to and Airbnb wanted to. And you know, and I think that's just that's an indictment of uh, our current securities laws and the fact that they haven't been updated in 90 years. Um, so, you know, the securities legislation that that the SEC is working off of, and and this heavy-handed you know uh, approach and, and guidance that they've given to the crypto community, you know, this is the result of um, legislation that was passed uh, passed in 1933 at the beginning of the Great Depression. Um, 1940, uh, right before we entered World War II, and um, and a you know Supreme Court ruling called um, called Howey, which uh, I, I believe was like 1946, somewhere in there, so the the kind of mid 40s, and um, there's a lot that's happened since then. <laughs> so you know the world has gotten more connected, the economy is globalized, um, and uh, we have not only you know, modern computing and the, and the internet and mobile, but you know, back when uh, the Howey decision came down, you know, we barely even had like modern cryptography, right? A lot of people think that uh, modern cryptography was basically born in, in you know, the 1940s. So um, I think the, uh, at, at the end of the day, um, these tokens do capitalize on regulatory arbitrage between like this outdated legacy system um, that will you know basically try to classify anything with volatility as a security if there's you know, some kind of user interest and, and user incentive associated with it, um, and uh, and and really you're trying to to match that with I think where the rest of the world already is, which is recognizing that a lot of these new assets look and feel different than securities. So there needs to be either a light touch approach to regulation um, or an emphasis on uh, mitigated fraud, right? So um, one way to kind of solve for that is, is how do you basically abide by the spirit of, of all these old securities laws and how do you retrofit them to, um, to apply to tokens so that these tokens can actually be useful? Because there's plenty of examples of teams 
that actually made their tokens and their ecosystems worse uh, than they they had to be and, and, and designed them poorly because they didn't want to enable some functionality that might trip over you know, these, these outdated securities laws and, and ultimately get them into trouble or even shut down the project. Um, I think um, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, but really when we go into 2022, it's not necessarily user education um, that's a challenge because there are folks that are working on that. It's not necessarily the, the, the you know, technology that's a challenge. Again, teams are working on that. It's not perfect, but that's why the returns are structurally higher because um, the ecosystem is immature and, and you're basically getting paid the premium as a user um, in order to experiment with, with some of these new systems. It, it really comes down to um, uh, regulation and and just how fierce is this battle going to be, particularly in, in the West and, and the U.S. in particular with the SEC. And so when you start to think about um, how this plays out, we then get into like the geography conversation and kind of regulatory regime conversation. Uh, there mm-hmm. are certain jurisdictions that uh, pride themselves on having the strictest rules, the, the kind of fairest rules, um, and uh, the most oversight, the most safety, if you will. Right? I'll kind of put that in air quotes, if you will. Um, and then there's other jurisdictions that pride themselves on like, it's a free-for-all, do whatever you want. And actually the, uh, the feature, not the bug, is that there are no rules or there's very few rules. Is there a healthy tension from like a competitive standpoint between various jurisdictions where ultimately they are going to have to compete for entrepreneurs, for uh, businesses and and for investors, or is there going to have to be, um, let's say in America, for example, that I think falls in the former category of like, Hey, we have really strict rules, a internal push that most people are actually not willing to leave the U S but they do want better rules. And so that internal push has to create better rules, but not force people to leave. Like how much I guess is like the, the, uh, I don't call it a threat, but like the promise of an exit really in, you know, kind of affecting rule creation versus it sounds good, but 90% of people aren't leaving. I I do think that it's already happening to a certain extent um, in a couple of different ways. Right. So, so there are uh, certain countries that are attracting, you know, crypto, uh, developers and, and entrepreneurs, um, Portugal, Singapore, uh, Dubai. You know, these are um, areas of the world where they're being you know, very open and, and proactive about courting innovators um, in in some respects because um, they know that this is the future. And, and in others, they're just being opportunistic because they, they see how much potential um, economic uh, development in the short and medium term can you know, be brought to you know, their their jurisdiction if, if they just you know kind of welcome these groups with open arms, and um, I think there's a misconception that the choices between like the regulated U.S. and the unregulated everywhere else, right? Um, because at the end of the day, the um, sorry, uh, I just had another call come through. Can you can you still hear me? Yep. Okay, we can edit this. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the U.S. has 38% of the you know, financial services or, or exchange market share in the world for a reason, right? Because we do have the rule of law. We have, have you know, very strong history of property rights. We've got the, the world's most efficient markets. Um, and, uh, and, and I think you know, people want to tap that and investors you know, have confidence that someone is keeping watch uh, over the markets, which is why they feel comfortable deploying capital here. Um, 
That's not really the issue with crypto. The issue with crypto is that the SEC is um, is basically attempting to jerry-rig old securities laws to fit onto tokens, and they technically don't work. They will literally break these protocols. I'll give you the perfect shining example, and this is in the report, of um, how dysfunctional our system is. You have CoinList, a company uh, that is now a unicorn that was spun out of AngelList, um, one of the crowdfunding platforms that actually helped author the Jobs Act, which led to something called Reg A+, an easier way for startups to raise capital without going through a full registration process. CoinList facilitates token sales, compliant token sales where the customers are known, they've got all these disclosures, the, they're pre-vetted. You know, it's almost like a, an, an IPO platform for, um, for token communities. Every single one of the crowd sales that they've done has produced a positive return in dollar terms. And most of them have wildly outperformed the S's the S&P and, and even you know, the benchmark assets in crypto like Bitcoin and Ethereum since they were actually launched. The only one that has underperformed is a token that failed because they went through the, the SEC's Reg A plus process and they realized that registering as a security broke the usability of the token because every single time they wanted to make a technical upgrade, they would have had to make a filing or get pre-approval with the SEC to do it. It's just not how tech works, right? And, and it, would, it would be no different than saying for a company like Facebook that's gone public, every single time you make a tweak to your algorithms, you need to file an SEC filing and, and kind of an updated prospectus to account for these new changes that you made and how they're going to impact investors. It's ridiculous, right? It, it's, and, and I think anyone that you kind of show that evidence to will look at, at this as, as an absurd um, position that we've gotten ourselves into. The SEC will say, well, we're just interpreting existing securities law and case law, and we have broad jurisdiction. So you know, someone has to kind of step in and, and make sure that we, we catch the bad guys or, or, or make sure that we meet out fraud. And it's Congress's job uh, to update that letter of the law. And that's true to a certain extent. But um, the other problem is there is not a whole lot of creativity in policymaking circles. And um, in you know, the SEC in particular, in their case, they have one commissioner that's actually very forward thinking, Hester Peirce, uh, who has proposed a safe harbor that would solve a lot of these problems and kind of allow for a cooling off period while proper legislation can be formed and, and while the kind of regulatory outlook for tokens can be you know, really fleshed out with her colleagues and, and other regulators in the US. And it's gone nowhere, right? The the other commissioners um, have not only ignored it, but but they've shot it down since a couple of uh, lawmakers have, have proposed um, actually you know, making this statutory and um, and and assigning a regulator uh, to the crypto economy and, and to oversee tokens in particular with with an emphasis on the safe harbor. So. Um, there's a lot that's broken uh, in in you know the the U.S. kind of regulatory scene um, and D.C.'s relationship with with tech more generally. But I think the difference this time around is, you know, with a company like Facebook, you can call Mark Zuckerberg up and, and yell at him in front of Congress. You can't do that as effectively with these crypto developers and these new protocols because they will just spill overseas. Um, and the development will defect, and, and it is actually easier than uh, trying to migrate and import an entire like 
software as a service legacy business from San Francisco to Portugal or San Francisco to Singapore, because these are protocols that are being developed um, in a remote first global environment from day one. So this brings me to the idea of these decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to explain what my view of kind of Bitcoin and the regulatory environment it is. You can uh, tell me that I'm right or wrong. Probably you can tell me I'm wrong. Uh, But, you know, kind of uh, feel free to, to edit this at all. Bitcoin is probably the only asset that across all of the regulatory uh, bodies in the United States has either gotten the official thumbs up, you know, this is not a security, or uh, somebody in the position of power or influence at the top of the organization at a conference or something has confirmed that as well, right? And Mm -hmm. my understanding is that it really all revolves around this idea of decentralization, we don't need to get into what exactly qualifies as decentralization versus not. Is it spectrum? Is it not? Whatever. It's, okay, there's decentralization. People say that's not a security. Ethereum then is the second largest asset, obviously. Uh, and I would say that majority is probably how I would categorize it. Agencies have come out and said they do not believe it to be a security. I think there's some that still haven't said anything publicly, but the thought process is Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't at the time of which it was issued, um, but it is now sufficiently decentralized. Again, we kind of start getting into some more of the nuance. Uh, and so some of the organizations that have at least publicly commented on it believe that it is not a security today. If we, well, let me pause there. Is that like an accurate understanding of how you see those two assets so far to where we've gotten from a, like a regulatory standpoint? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and what you're referring to is actually language from an SEC commissioner. Um, that opened the door for a crypto asset to become, quote unquote, sufficiently decentralized. Um, what exactly that meant, they never elaborated on. So, you know, we're, yes. we're, we're still waiting for that clarification. Okay. So let's just say that's where we are now. There are a ton of projects, uh, from my view, again, agree or disagree, that are not decentralized, uh, whether they say they are or they aren't just not decentralized and likely to either one, not be successful uh, and or potentially come under regulatory scrutiny, potentially penalties, whatever. We've already seen some of them where regulators have gone after them. We've got others that I think, you know, the community, the audience believes, you know, these are likely to to be in the crosshairs. Uh, Let's set those aside. I don't want to deal with those ones because frankly, I'm no smarter than anybody else there. But there is a subset of the rest that, are trying to achieve decentralization as a way to operate within the rules, but also provide these technologies, these services to the audience. And so my understanding is that DAOs have, you know, that idea was sort of as an idea before we get to more of like a, a default product. That idea has become the consensus of like, this is how we're going to do it. What is your kind of understanding of the state of where the DAOs are and how much of that is like, we're late nineties, good idea. First iteration probably doesn't work and it'll take another decade for it to work versus no right idea, right time. You know, there are going to be some that work and some that don't. I think this is the trillion dollar question for, for the next couple of years. Um, I'm looking, I'm looking for how, free alpha from you. Come on, just give it to me. That's, well, that, that, that's why we're here, baby. So Bang, bang. Um, well, uh, I, I think, you know, from a personal investment standpoint, you know, I read about this in the thesis and also you know, where you're know, really putting our money where our mouth is. This is where we're, we're spending a lot of time at Masari building tools um, for DAOs and for um, 
users that are actively participating in these DAOs. So first of all, you know, what is a decentralized autonomous organization, right? It's basically a, a set of smart contracts that creates a governance structure to manage some library of assets, which usually includes a treasury, at least of a native token that represents interest in the DAO. Um, and you can think about it, you know, a little bit like a, a share of stock, right? Because it has voting rights and, and you, you can basically control the governance of the system. Um, and then it can control all sorts of other assets, either other currencies in the treasury, it can control, um, you know, the the uh, IP and, and the keys to the you know, protocol, like the root access and, and where developers kind of commit up updates. Um, at the end of the day, though, it's easiest to just think about it as like a community governed bank account, right? Or, or you know, some type of uh, collective governed um, pool of assets. And uh, that brings about some challenges in, in different jurisdictions when it comes to how do you do business with a DAO, right? What type of legal entity is it? You know, can you even enter into commercial agreements um, with, with a decentralized organization that isn't a formal partnership or a formal um, LLC or, or other corporation? Um, and then, you know, beyond that, um, how do you pay taxes, right? So if the DAO contracts with, you know, another protocol and, and, it, and, and the, a certain DAO is basically representative of a group of 10 developers that are providing like contract auditing services to other protocols. Um, well, how does that entity then pay taxes? Is it passed through like an LLC? Is it, you know, are they, who's handling the withholdings and, and all the other kind of payroll tax elements? So there's a whole mess in terms of the, the operations of these DAOs that ultimately stems from the fact that we don't have a good legal definition of them anywhere in the US. Now, there are um, uh, examples and, and, uh, and, and kind of early iterations of uh, DAO legal structures that I think are going to become commonplace and will ultimately get adopted nationally. Um, and actually, there's been at least one proposal in Wyoming, and I think another in, in Texas, to actually give uh, certain types of DAOs legal standing and give them a path to registering in the state of Wyoming so that they have a given tax status. What's funny is this actually happened in the 70s with something called the Limited Liability Corporation, which if you're an American, particularly if, if you're an investor or, or, or you run a business, you're probably familiar with LLCs um, as you know an innovative new corporate structure that you know frankly is is only about forty years old. It started in Wyoming and it took about a decade or so for uh, for that structure to actually be recognized nationally by the IRS. So there's precedent for this in terms of like starting locally or, or starting you know at a state level with a new construct and then you know bringing that up to um, to the, the the federal level. Um, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Aaron Wright's, um, you know, uh, Lex Node, I always forget his real name, uh, from, from, from Delphi, they, they've all written um, about uh, unincorporated associations, which are basically a form of nonprofit that the DAOs could follow, hypothetically follow this path and, and ultimately become uh, legally recognized in the US. So that's all the legal jargon that nobody cares about. But, you know, for the 5% of people who are listening that, that do and find that interesting, um, there is a pathway there. I think the bigger um, challenge that needs to be solved with DAOs is understanding how are you ultimately sharing information at scale and how are these DAOs and these token governed communities fitting under 
the spirit of legacy securities uh, protection or you know, consumer protections. And that's a little trickier because who has liability, who's responsible for this information? Um, it sounds nice in theory to quit among like crypto crowds, you know, do your own research and basically figure everything out yourself. But going back to your earlier point, I mean, that the reason that we have an outsized market share in the U.S., of uh, the financial markets is because of the rule of law and property and, and kind of expectations around information uh, symmetry between investors and fair play. And I think um, right now we're still you know, very much in uh, in the early stages where insider information runs rampant only because the insiders are the people building these ecosystems. And, um, and you know, hypothetically, these would be you know, startups in any other environment, it just so happens you've got this weird dynamic of public market liquidity, private market information asymmetry, not because people are trying to you know, scam others or, or, or you know, outright defraud them, but because it's unclear who can even make a disclosure on behalf of a, a given community. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example just to make this tangible. Um, there's a uh, protocol called uh, Melonport, which launched a, a few years back. And they've since changed their name to you know, something else. It's called Enzyme now. But when it was first started, it was called Melonport. And the Melon protocol um, basically was built over the first couple of years and then uh, ultimately launched into the wild. The token holders were you know, basically given control of the system. And the legal entity that had spun up the protocol to begin with literally disbanded. They, dis they, you know, they dissolved the entity. And the only thing that was remaining were the token holders that were responsible for, for ongoing decisions and upgrades to this you know, community governed protocol. Now, other companies could you know, ultimately provide services or, or, or contribute to developments, but there was no company that existed any longer, and yet these tokens persisted. So um, in the future, I think you're going to see a lot of structures that either look like that or that basically, you know, start out with these, you know, almost like immaculate conceptions for, for organizations where it's um, it's a handful of individuals and, and entities that kind of get together and they, they launch a, a, a essentially a group project. They have, you know, interest in it in the form of tokens. The tokens don't necessarily have any real world value, but then over time, as the community around it gets larger and larger and more people want to enter the community, um, then... You know, by definition, those communities have value, and then the membership interests, which are, are the tokens, you know, will, will accrue value alongside of it. So there's this like chicken and the egg thing in, in terms of like the the governance of you know these token systems that are, are governed by DAOs. Um, how do you um, how do you start uh, from day one with disclosures and 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 liability and kind of managing all of the traditional like corporate responsibilities? And then over time, even as you're decentralized, what are the different stakeholder responsibilities um, in that given system? One of the things that you have in uh, the document is all about venture capital and capital flowing in. So whether it is decentralized, things that we're just talking about, whether it is uh, equity-based uh, opportunities or everything in between, um, it's very obvious that there are billions and billions of dollars flowing into the industry. Uh, there are now multiple asset managers or venture capital funds that have raised billions of dollars for a single fund. Um, mm -hmm. How does the role of an investor change in this new world? Is it 
still what I'll use is like the quintessential overgeneralization, you know, the VC in the vest who just strokes a check after they've paraded you around their firm and you've met everyone and everyone agrees like, yep, this sounds great and let's write a check and then we'll go brag about it when they're successful. Is it the other extreme, which is like the investor is in the discord and writing code and, you know, is like part of the community. Is there a mix? Like, how do you think about the role of an investor as so much capital flows into this industry? I don't think this is unique to crypto, um, but I, I think that basically all of the top performing venture funds, whether you're talking about crypto or, or, or otherwise, um, it's getting more competitive to enter rounds. And, and the only way that you can enter rounds and, and you know, get the, uh, the preference of the entrepreneurs that you're working with is to, to be thought of as a value added partner. Um, and that, you know, well, every VC is is going to you know, talk about how much value they add to their portfolio. The lion's share of the value that they bring to the table historically has been the check that they write, right? Or you know, maybe one level up if they sit on the board, they're providing some type of oversight and strategic value at the board level as a director and, and part of the corporate fabric. Um, but you know, for the most part, uh, the thing that really matter for you know crypto entrepreneurs and, and entrepreneurs in general is. Um, what type of uh, signal is this going to send to business partners, to key recruits, to the rest of the marketplace about you know our, our viability as a business? Because you don't have the benefit of a 20-year track record as a, a legacy business or a legacy brand. Um, and then the other thing is distribution, right? So um, how, uh, how effectively uh, will an investor's involvement with you know, a, a given company uh, help them kind of build out their capabilities uh, on on the business development front or marketing front. Right? How how quickly can they become more widely known and accessible as a product? And I think um, within crypto uh, projects and, and those that have tokens in particular, this is kind of dialed up to 100 in terms of importance because um, if you don't have good community distribution and you don't have the ability to get very quickly connected in, into other um, projects uh, across you know, a given ecosystem, you are just going to fall to the back of the line um, in, in terms of priorities for you know, BD and, and technical integrations. And then you're also going to fall to the back of the line in terms of you know, investor mindshare. There's so much going on and, and user mindshare, right? Not just like VC mindshare, but like in user investor mindshare. There's so much going on right now that you know, there's 500 protocols today that have a hundred million dollar market cap or more. I guarantee you that even most people in the industry would not be able to put uh, 50% of those names um, onto a whiteboard and, uh, and and get the answer right because there's just so many that are like up and coming at the same time. There's a lot of things that are garbage that you've never even heard of, um, but the fact that you can actually run a $100 million business in an ecosystem that didn't exist four years ago, right? If we're talking about tokens versus like the early generation of coins, like 2017, four years, there are hundreds of these businesses that are less than four years old um, that no one knows about, right? And, and so I think the value of an investor um, in that environment is helping an, an early stage community think about you know, how they become ubiquitous, how they actually stand head and shoulders above um, other competitors in a, in a pretty crowded marketplace. And um, 
and you know, how effectively are, are they going to be able to you know, help connect the dots with the rest of their you know, community-oriented um, investments? When you think about uh, the founder, we talked a little bit about how the investor role changes. Uh, the founder used to be the person who owns majority of uh, the opportunity or the entity. Uh, they kind of called the shots. Um, with the rise of DAOs or decentralized efforts or even just pure open source software that has no you know, kind of token or anything associated with it, how does the person whose original idea it is or who writes the first amount of code or who organizes resources in the beginning, who historically would be called the founder, like how does their role change in all of this? I think it, it really depends on um, you know, from, from case to case, but I think um, strong founders that bring projects to market um, and that have some success, even if they relinquish control and these become community governed hypothetically, the founder still has an outsized role uh, in these ecosystems. And you know, there have been cases where the founder has stepped back and it's been a, a negative signal and, and you've seen a lot of selling you know, after the fact and um, and people basically lose interest in the project because they, they think that it's leaderless um, or they, they think that it, it, it's you know, rudderless because the rest of the community is not going to be capable of picking up the slack um, you know, with the same credibility or, or, or passion that the, um, that the original founder did. Um, so I think, it's, uh, I think it's very important. But again, I think when we go back to thinking about something like the safe harbor and, and the need to update securities laws, here is an example of, of uh, the bad things that can happen when you don't take this new technology seriously and you try to label everything as a fraud that's not sufficiently decentralized without any path to actually doing that the right way. You could legally sell tokens to accredited, accredited only investors in the US, um, only distribute those tokens once a network launches, have the network explicitly designed to consume those tokens as um, you know an actual utility coin not just like a security by another name but um, you know have have the, the tokens kind of useful in this decentralized protocol that the investors can redeem and, and then you know ultimately reward other kind of new users of the protocol at the same time and the day that you do that the team that released the token in the first place, washes their hands of the project, moves on to something else. And you've now got a non-entity, a non-organization and, and basically no leadership for, um, for a, a set of protocols and potentially a lot of you know, financial value that um, basically is, is floating in the ether, but um, isn't being pooled or, or kind of put to any real productive use. And, and there's no kind of ongoing developments um, that will be you know, scale up the, the use of that protocol or, or you know, scale up the um, uh, scale returns for the folks that remain in the system and, and uh, are, are sticking around either using it or, or, or trying to reinvest in, in additional growth. Hypothetically, that would not be a security uh, because there's, you know, there's no longer a, a common entity um, in the case that Upon launch of a protocol, the, the, the entity that, that created the protocol in the first place just dissolved. There's no expectation of, of profit based on the work of others because you're, you basically just fired your, your core development team. And, um, 
And the SEC would look at that and say, yeah, there, there's there's no common enterprise here. There's no ongoing development. It's been very clear that any user in the system is just using the protocol, but they're not expecting a profit because how could they? There's no one working on it. Um, you know, that that would be seen as a non-security and, and you know, probably better than the alternative, which is I have a company, I sell, you know, I, I want to retain some governance rights over this protocol. Um, and we're going to retain you know, 20% ownership for, for our company. We're going to have 20% to a foundation. We're going to give 20% to users and advisors and you know, have this really sophisticated rollout schedule because that's centrally controlled at the time of launch and the assets are, are liquid at the time of launch. All of a sudden, that flips into looking like an unregistered security. And, and now you need to come in and talk to the SEC, even if it might ultimately break the utility of the token. Um, I think... Uh, again, that that's obvious to anyone uh, with with two eyes. That that's ridiculous and, and unsustainable for for us as a, as a country uh, and as an economy. But um, that's kind of the reality of of where we are today. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things that's uh, it, it's probably the issue of the new year that still needs to be solved. How big can all of this get? Like we're talking about the nuances here, and I think that people generally are going to end up on one of two sides. Uh, they're either going to end up on like, yep, this mostly makes sense. Maybe I'd have some disagreements about some of the the detail, but like, yeah, this is going to be a thing. There's going to be people who say there's zero chance that this is going to work. And like, you guys are all morons and wasting your life and, you know, see ya. Okay. The people who believe it's going to work, if they're right, how big does it get? Is this a, you know, two and a half trillion dollar market today that goes to 10 trillion, 20 trillion? Or is this like a market expanding technology that literally we start measuring entire assets in, you know, hundred plus trillion dollars, uh, you know, kind of market caps? Well, you know, there's um, at the end of the day, uh, if, if Bitcoin and crypto goes high enough, uh, the price becomes infinite, not because there's no cap uh, in, in terms of like growth potential, but because, you know, fiat currencies stop mattering as, as kind of the base unit. Uh, of, of account, right? So that the dollar hyperinflates or the euro hyperinflates or, or whatever. The whole, you know, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin meme. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that if you think about cryptocurrencies as a potential replacement for fiat currencies, I don't think that's completely outside the realm of possibility. But I think it, it'd be a really kind of messy and chaotic future if, if that's where we go and you know, the, the, the near to medium term. Um, what's more likely to happen is, you know, this tech is going to sit alongside the, the you know, regulated financial system, you know, the, the, the web two stack of Facebook and Google and uh, Amazon and, and, and all these other big tech companies that we know. And, um, and they're going to co- coexist. So the question is like, how, how big should the parallel system be and the user owned economy be in the medium term? Um, and I think, Maybe uh, just getting to parity with some of the old world analogs is how we should be thinking about the, the near term. So 55% of gold reserves are held for investment and in central bank coffers. If you get to parity, if Bitcoin gets to parity with gold, just for that use case, that's about $6 trillion, a little over $6 trillion. That would mean we're at $300,000 per Bitcoin, right? So maybe... Gold, gold, that's parity. 
Then you look at um, kind of where Ethereum is and you think about the, the um, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple, right? Like somewhere between a trillion and, and you know, two and a half trillion dollars in market cap. Ethereum's about you know, half a billion. It's up to 600 billion, I think, maybe uh, maybe today, close to it. So you know, a double from here is, uh, is getting close to 10,000. Uh, and it still you know, would only rank you know, barely in the top five for the, for the FANGs. Um, then you look at something like, uh, like DeFi, and we are at less than uh, one-tenth of 1%, I believe. No, sorry, we're, we're, we're less than 1% of, um, of just the banking market cap. So uh, about like 0.7% of, um, of the bank's market cap is in, in DeFi-related assets today. Do you think that can get to 10% in the medium term? I do, right? So, so I, I think that becomes your target. And then finally, with something like NFTs, which really is basically just creating um, digital, you know, scarce digital objects in the virtual world um, versus uh, scarce physical objects in the real world, you know, the, the, the sky is the limit there if you expect that we're going to spend more and more of our time online over the course of the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, so I think uh, the, the way to think about, you know, crypto versus um, kind of legacy finance or, or just legacy assets in general is that um, these are going to uh, exist alongside each other for a very long time. And it's going to be much more gradual than I think a lot of people um uh, tend to talk about these things, right? Like we're, we're not going to jump immediately from like uh, the world that we live today into this like web three, you know, very futuristic utopia of, of, of crypto asset, you know, powered networks. That installation phase is going to take 10, 15, 20 years, right? We're, we're still seeing um, the the scale and, and, and growth that like the, the mobile boom has generated and even like the, the web one internet. So um, that's taken a good 30 years for the internet, a good you know, 15, 20 years so far for mobile. Uh, I don't expect that's gonna change uh, overnight, but it, it could be uh, in, in the same breath, it could happen a lot faster or certain parts of the asset class could grow at, at kind of hyperspeed um, in, uh, in, in some years and, and you'll see kind of long pair markets for, for others. Perfect examples like NFTs versus DeFi. NFTs could continue to explode next year because it's an asset that people understand and, um, and has like real retail interest and adoption and not as much in the way of regulatory headwinds. On the other hand, DeFi, very interesting, extremely useful, lots of momentum and lots of interest and, and technical development. A lot of really smart finance people are working on it, but it's got these crazy regulatory headwinds right now. So um, it's not going to be a straight line, but uh, I think people that have the long-term mindset uh, are, are going to be rewarded, um, not necessarily on individual bets, but uh, at a macro level if they're you know, spending their career here. When you start to look at uh, those cycles, you're talking a little bit about like the decoupling of assets um, and, and kind of various um, severity and length are we going to get to a point where everything is completely decoupled or will there still be the crypto market, which encompasses everything from Bitcoin to NFTs and DAOs and everything in between? Or do we just 
penetrate and infiltrate all these other industries. And so similar to, you know, um, companies used to say, Hey, we're an internet company. Now it's just like, we're a company. Right. And of course we use the internet. We're like, how do you kind of view this, uh, sequentially playing out, if you will? I think we've already decoupled to a, a certain extent. Um, so, you know, my friend, Dan Matazuski is an investor too. He, um, he popularized, uh, what he calls the hot ball of money trade uh, earlier this year. And I'm sure you've seen this on, on Twitter pump, but basically, um, you know, you, you go to where the hot ball of money is, is flowing next. And like this rotation between different sectors of crypto um, over the course of the last year and a half, it kind of reflects that we are decoupling, right? Um, we're decoupling thematically first. Uh, and, you know, over a longer time period, we'll, we'll, we'll likely decouple, you know, from the macro markets and, and, and general tech markets as well. But at least for today, there has been a decoupling of different sectors within crypto. So people have started to recognize that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are going to be different and they're going to trade, you know, a, a little bit differently than like layer one smart contract platforms like Ethereum, Solana, Terra, you know, Avalanche, et cetera. Um, and you'll see you know, this year, Bitcoin has been, you know, it, it's had a good year, but it, it's been relatively flat. I think at the beginning of the year, you know, it's it's less than doubled, which if you compare it to Ethereum and then all the other kind of smart contract platforms that that uh, are competing with Ethereum, that um, those assets have, have gone up, you know, 10, 100x um, over the course of the last nine months to absorb some of this demand and, and, and all this transaction throughput. Um, DeFi, you saw the same thing. It's gone the other direction, right? In in uh, in Ethereum terms or, or in Bitcoin terms, a lot of DeFi is flattered down. So it's it's been in this like nine ten month bear market. The the next theme that people have really you know, gotten excited about instead has been NFTs. So that's you know kind of the the, the next cycle here. Um, and I think you know as one of these sectors enters a bear market. It's likely that the other will enter a, a, a bull market and, and vice versa. So instead of having this um, multi-year bear market that kind of washes uh, away a, a lot of early projects and, and really creates a lot of pain like we saw in 2015 and again in 2018, 2019, instead we might be in an environment where, um, yes, there's you know, maybe there's some blow off top and then there's a, a pretty significant correction, but um, you'll also see... Uh, some type of backstop because unlike the last couple of cycles, there's now tens of billions, you know, maybe even a hundred billion dollars of capital on the sideline that that's ready to get put to work within crypto in the in the events that you know, things do uh, fall pretty precipitously in in 2022 or, or at some point when you know the bubble pops. Um, I think at that point, you know, that's when we'll see like real like long term winners emerge and the also rands will fall by the wayside. Just like every other cycle, right? So you, you'll see some new horses that have some staying power, and then you'll you'll see some old ones that you know get sent to the glue factory. When you start to look at uh, this whole idea of surviving winter, that is uh, one of the other themes in here. Um, I think in past cycles, people have basically gone from those rotations out to risky assets and everyone kind of comes running back into uh, Bitcoin and, and what's deemed as the less volatile or, or more stable uh, assets. Now it's comical to say that because they still draw down 85% in, in past cycles. Uh, so, you know, less stable, meaning that uh, other assets drew down 99%, you only drew down 85, but still um, uh, there has been that rotation that you described. How do you think about the activities in future bear markets? Is it 
learn from the past ones or because now you get some of this decoupling, you get kind of different assets, you get rotations. Is there almost this belief that like there will always be a bull market and a bear market that could be going on at this any one given time? And so you have to learn more about rotation than it is like what to do in a bear market. You just avoid the bear markets by rotating into something that's not in a bear market. Well, I think that's exactly right with one caveat. I mean, you can rotate into stable coins as well, which is essentially rotating into cash, but but those assets are 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 still, you know, locked in the crypto economy. You're not necessarily taking them back out into um the legacy finance system. Um yeah, I think something would have to go, you know, really catastrophically wrong for for that to be an end case um in, in the next couple of years, uh, from a policy standpoint, right? Um because I, I doubt very much that you'll see kind of user uh, or developer enthusiasm um, uh, abate to that extreme level that, that you would just see like a wholesale exodus of, of, of assets. Um, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not someone that thinks that we're, we're just kind of going up uh, into the right in, in perpetuity, you know, as has been the case for the last decade, there's going to be a lot of volatility along the way. But um, my point in, in kind of highlighting that particular section is we could have a, a winter where Bitcoin does rally to reach parity with gold as, as an investment, which again would be about $300,000 per Bitcoin. That would be wildly, wildly overheated, in my opinion. So the crash from there could very well be 80%. Well, you know, an 80% drop from 300,000 is, you know, $120,000 Bitcoin, uh, or sorry, 60, 60%, uh, 60%. If there's a 60%, you know, correction, we'll go from, you know, 300,000 to 120,000. And um, that would be pretty bad, right? Uh, not just for, for, for Bitcoin and, and for crypto more generally, but I think for the broader economy, because at that point, you're starting to talk about like a ton of real world value that's getting, you know, sucked out um, of, of, you know, people's investment accounts uh, because their assets have, have depreciated. So, you know, what I've suggested um, is just kind of common sense, you know, sanity checks. Uh, if if you're relatively new to crypto and uh, you are interested in, in you know, being very aggressive and, and 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 you've got a risk on appetite, that's fine. But I would just keep an eye on the calendar because. There's three types of leverage. There's uh, the obvious, which is you know, you're you're borrowing to buy more, so your levers long, and you know we've seen 20, 30 percent drawdowns. The odds of you kind of getting caught with your your pants around your ankles is, is high, um, and uh, and it's a good way to to get you know, liquidated when the upside of of this asset class and, and this investment class is um, is still you know, incredibly high. So why take the added risk with, with you know, adding leverage to go long? Um, the other leverage, uh, which is just the, the dumbest form of leverage, is like going short anything. Like why, why you would go short uh, any asset that uh, has a tendency to go vertical because a celebrity tweets about it, it, it's probably a bad idea. And then the third kind of hidden bit of leverage is um, is tax planning. So uh, I think what I worry about for, for newcomers is anyone that's made a lot of money this year, particularly in something like NFTs, um, where they're going to have to you know, treat these as, as you know, capital gains and they haven't done the tax planning in advance. Well, if we have a 40% correction on January 1st, some of these folks might actually owe more in taxes than they made all of this year. And you know, tough shit uh, as far as the IRS is, is concerned, right? You can, you can write off those losses for the next 10 years or whatever, but that doesn't change the fact that you still owe what you owe from, for last year. So um, this is basically like a one-month warning Get your shit together. Uh, you know, 
uh, write off, you know, try try to realize some tax losses if you have them, and um, and, and make sure that you have the cash on hand to pay whatever your liability is for next year. Otherwise, it's a hidden form of leverage. Public markets have come into play. Uh, we've seen tons of Bitcoin miners uh, either become public or start to get a lot of notoriety and capital markets exposure uh, using debt markets or equity raises. Uh, then obviously we had Coinbase go public as well, um, which was kind of the the quintessential you know American brand, uh, if you will, uh, at least from a retail and Wall Street perspective. Uh, how do you think about public markets and that evolving through 2022? I think it's good for... Um, the free marketing and for the insights it gives like institutional investors and in, into how, you know, this, this entire ecosystem of, of new assets is, is evolving and, and uh, where to look for opportunities. You know, Coinbase in particular is interesting because you see how quickly some of the non-trading components of their business are growing, right? Um, particularly you know, staking in custody. So you can tell just from their custody numbers that they're onboarding a lot of new institutional entrants you can see from staking that this migration to proof of stake networks is going to be extremely lucrative for anyone that's actually you know custodying assets and, and serving as like a hosted service for for um, for users. So um, as an insider, you know I like looking at their ten Qs just because um, I could care less about the transaction revenues. You, you know that that's going to be you know, volume driven, and you, you you more or less know on a day to day basis how much these exchanges are making money if you just look at their uh, historical volumes, which are public. You look at their you know, quarterly reports, which are now public. And then you can kind of you know, guesstimate what the, uh, what the average you know, basis point uh, take rate is on, uh, on those volumes. So it's not necessarily useful for anyone that's in the trenches and knows where to look within crypto, because a lot of this is just you know, public record. Um, I do think that um, the... Uh, the large you know, institutional investors that are going to you know, make their initial uh, plays in crypto, they're going to look at things like the the uh, ETF. They're going to look uh, for things like Coinbase and some of the public miners that they can get behind. Um, but the reality is, you know, that uh, those assets are probably going to underperform the underlying at this point. Um, particularly, you know, when it comes to like new token related projects. So if I were to guess, you know, where the returns flow in you know, the next couple of years, uh, number one is going to be in um, liquid tokens. Uh, number two is going to be in uh, startup infrastructure and all of like the new, you know, kind of pre-IPO infrastructure. And then, you know, number three would be anything that's publicly traded. So um, perfect example is, uh, uh, of this is, um, is, you know, Digital Currency Group, where um, great business uh, has grown to, you know, $10 billion valuation uh, was just announced a, a few weeks ago. They did a, a large transaction with SoftBank. Um, but, you know, it depends on your vantage point, you know, whether that's that's been a, a good investment or not, because, you know, that as an investment is uh, incredible by like real world venture capital standards. It's outperformed Bitcoin by 80% over the same time period, right? So like those, those are the things that companies, um, public companies and, um, and, and, non-tokenized companies are competing with these uh, really crazy outsized returns within the liquid markets. Whether that's sustainable is, you know, for the investor to, to kind of make up their mind. But I would argue that if you are trying to go um, non-token because you think tokens are in a bubble, but you still believe in the asset class, you probably want to be making, you know, venture style bets 
on um, on some of the enabling infrastructure versus the the public markets. Last thing I want to talk about, uh, which you kind of cover in here, kind of not, it's just memes. The meme is the message. Uh, it seems to uh, be more and more understood every day, every week, every month. Um, you do cover uh, W-A-G-M-I. We all going to make it uh, as uh, one part of this. But I think it's one piece of a much bigger story just around, um, you know, kind of memes and how they fit in here. I don't think there has to be an answer to the question I'm about to ask, but I'm interested in your thoughts how much of uh, the Bitcoin, smart contract, Ethereum, uh, stable coins, DAOs, NFTs, like the whole spectrum has to, quote unquote, grow up and mature and fit in with the Wall Street finance and like, you know, Silicon Valley tech VC crowd versus they have to capitulate and they've got to learn the memes. They've got to come and play the game. They got to take their suits and ties off and, and uh, go the other way. Is it either or is it mutually exclusive? Is it blended? Well, how, how, just how do you think about it? Like memes to me is like the, the big thing, you know, you, you don't exactly imagine like a wall street banker, uh, texting somebody W a G M I, but, uh, I've seen it. So how, how do you think mm-hmm. about this? Um, I, I, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Um, I certainly think that, um, I, look, I, I think the banks will ultimately leverage open protocols like Ethereum or, you know, in, in DeFi, you know, like, like MakerDAO, like we saw with SockGen in, in France, um, providing collateral to, uh, to Maker, which is a, a decentralized finance lending platform. Um, I think you'll start to see you know, more of those integrations and um, and you'll start to see you know, the, the major financial institutions take it seriously because one thing that they're very good at is going where the money is. And historically, the problem has not only been regulatory in nature, but it's been, you know, is the, um, is the liquidity of the asset class deep enough? Um, and like, is there an opportunity to make kind of real outsized returns for the Technical, regulatory, you know, and, and financial risks that that would be entailed with with going all in here. Um, I uh, I tend to think that most of the growth here will come via M and A, um, and you know it's going to only happen once there's a, a little bit of uh, regulatory clarity and there's some kind of clear guidance from on high. What is kind of fair game and fair play for the banks themselves? Um, I definitely think some of the like regulatory pressure is coming kind of indirectly from the banks, but not maybe in the way that the crypto folks think that it is. Um, it's not crypto is like a, a existential threat to you know, us and our business models. You know, maybe there's a little bit of that, but the banks are pretty fucking powerful. So like, you know, I, like, I don't, I don't think anyone is losing sleep over this right now. It's mostly we want to play by the same set of rules and we want those rules to be enforced because there's an ungodly amount of money being made, and if you're telling us that this is elite, that this is legal, then uh, we want to be able to participate, and we want guidance on how we can participate. Because you know, it, it is a threat for us to be forcibly removed from this market and kept on the sideline, um, you know, or crack down on it, right? Like uh, enforce the law if if you if you think that these. Um, new assets are unregistered securities and, and, and you think that it's rife with scams and abuse and, and all that, then uh, then shut it down or, or, or actually pick up the enforcement against bad actors. So, um, you know, th- there's there's definitely 
um, history on the side of Wall Street. You know, they, they digitized pretty effectively. Um, peer-to-peer lending, all that market making is, is basically now done you know, by the big lenders, the big banks. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really view crypto as ultimately being any different. And we're, we're starting to see more, you know, legacy financial firms come into the, the fray, you know, like, like Jump Capital and, um, and some of the big market makers, you know, Susquehanna um, and, and whatnot. I think um, that uh, that's inevitable. Um, and it's the, uh, it's kind of this, the, the, other side of the coin when it comes to uh, regulatory updates, right? If if smart regulation is passed, which again, I think I'm in favor of, I think most professionals in the industry are in favor of smart regulation and weeding out fraud and making sure that everybody's playing, you know, on, on you know, equal footing. But um, I think if that is all handled and, and Congress or policymakers don't throw the baby out of the bathwater, then you will see financial firms enter in a meaningful way. And um, and the space will continue to professionalize. Um, and just like, you know, tech and, and every other asset class, you know, the, the incumbents will adapt. Maybe you won't have to wear a tie to work anymore. Um, you know, I think the, that pressure has already come from Silicon Valley to, um, to the banks. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, at the same time, uh, maybe the folks that are walking around in, in sweatpants and, and, you know, hoodies and, uh, and, and, flying by the seat of their pants or, or kind of managing, you know, multi-signature wallets that have billions of dollars worth of assets on it on, on their own personal hard drives. Like, you know, maybe that'll get cleaned up as well. So there, there's, uh, I think it's less about like banks versus crypto or like legacy finance versus crypto and more about like the, uh, the crypto cowboys and then the crypto professionals and how that spectrum ultimately integrates with the rest of the financial system. So um, we're, we're getting there and I expect, uh, I expect next year to be another big year, even if the, uh, the market growth, uh, and, and appreciation cools off a little bit. Can't go up hundreds of percent every single year forever. But, uh, I tend to think that, uh, there's no better market in the world to be spending your time, energy, money, et cetera. And so I, uh, I feel like you, uh, you feel very similarly that I do. Um, where can we send people to read this uh, report? You can go to misari.io. It's going to be right on the homepage for pretty much the entire month. Um, and uh, it is a media report. So we're, we're releasing it early uh, in the hopes that uh, people will be able to read it, you know, kind of throughout through the, uh, at the holidays whenever you have a few hours, because it, it is going to be about, uh, I think, 180 pages. But the good news is it's it's split into about 120 sections, so 10 chapters, 100, 120 sections, give or take, and um, and those you know, can all serve as as tear sheets for different rabbit holes that uh, that your your listeners might go down uh, over the course of their journey and, and over the course of not only kind of holidays but but into next year. Where can we send people to find you on the internet? Where you want them to go? I am at Two Bit Idiot, all spelled out. T W O bit idiot the most fortunate accident of history my 2013 reddit throwaway name is now permanently tied to my identity and it fits you know that pump two-bit idiot who uh can churn out 180 pages you uh i wish i was an idiot (laughs) (laughs) awesome man listen thank you for doing this uh 
I enjoy reading it every year. Um, I've had the ability to uh, to skim through it, but uh, I feel like it's one of those things where you're scratching the surface, like, damn, I'm going to have to sit down and read this whole thing. I shouldn't have even skimmed it because now I'm convinced that uh, four or five hours one day, uh, that's what I'm going to go sit down and do. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, if you do not follow Ryan on the internet, uh, I don't know where you've been, but you should definitely go do that. And then uh, masari.io if uh, if you want to read um, read the full document. But uh, I think that's it, man. Thank you so much for doing this. And you know what? If people uh, just cannot bear the thought of opening a document that's that's that large, which I don't really fault them for, um, I will also be in, in Masari Crypto at Masari Crypto will be uh, will be tweeting out chunks uh, of the report. You know, basically all throughout the month of December. I uh, I feel like the Twitter thread is the cheat code. So I'm going to read it first it before is. you do that. All it right, is. my friend. And one more thing. We've yeah. got a big announcement coming up uh, next week. If the theses weren't enough, we've got a major new product that's coming out next week focused on DAO operations and uh, participation. So people take a look at that um, if they want to sign up for updates. can get that uh, the same place you sign up for the thesis. You're a legend. I appreciate you. We'll do it again next year. Maybe we'll do it a couple of times between now and then too. But uh, thanks so much. Popular for man. Out. Thanks as always. Make it an annual tradition.